Hi, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. We are all at home, so please bear with us while we talk over each other, ignore each other, and generally uh, lack all of those uh, sort of social cues you have when you're in person. But, you know, this is the future. In fact, Jonathan Monkley is joining us directly from cyberspace. Isn't that right, Jonathan? I am. I'm currently using a VR web browser, which is quite fun. Um, It's hurt my eyes a little bit, though. You, are you, you genuinely plugged into cyberspace 24-7 now? You've just given up on reality? Basically. Well, reality's collapsed around us, so basically I'm living in a world that isn't real anymore. Nice. Yeah. Maybe we all are. We're two weeks away from Jonathan only eating um, gruel, like nutritional-based gruel for sustenance and living in some kind of underground submarine thing. Um, it's, it's very close to that, to be honest. Um, I think maybe not even two weeks, maybe one week. Once I've uh, managed to synthesize a uh, perfect genetically engineered food that um, basically gives me all my nutrition. Well, you're a cyclist, aren't you? So you've kind of been on that quest for a while. What is the most food I can get in the least amount of effort? I found a bar called the Colossal Bar, and it was something like 600 calories in one bar, which was quite an interesting thing to eat. It was like for powerlifters and bodybuilders. Nice. Wow. And Vicky is joining us with uh, her young lady, Nora, who yeah. is a... My, my dog, not a, not a child, um, but she does snore quite loudly and um, snort a little bit. So if you hear that, that's definitely her, definitely not me. Um, she's a little French bulldog, very cute. And that uh, Neil has his young ones with us, with him, one of whom who is Donald Ducking it. Yep. Hello, everyone. Say hello. I'm just going to heavy breathe. Heavy breathing. That's just Neil. <laughs> oh, oh. Nice. So, 21st century meetings, ladies and gentlemen. 2020, be like. Okay, we also have with us, uh, I'd like to welcome Dan Rossiter. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I don't have any dogs or children to uh, distract podcast listeners with, so I'm afraid you're just stuck with me. I, I understand that you... Uh, did have to sacrifice some virtual animals to join us, or at least leave them alone for a bit. You've been there. Uh... That's true. Uh, when I'm not um, working, most of my time has been spent on Animal Crossing. So seems to be how people are spending their life right now. I'm. It's either Doom, which I'm playing, or Animal Crossing. So it's a lot, a lot about who you are as a person, I think. And Simon has joined us as well. How are you doing, Simon? Hello. 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 Am I on mute? You are not on mute. Okay, excellent. <laughs> Sorry, I was on a previous Zoom with uh, family, and I was realised I was on mute the whole time, so I couldn't actually talk to anybody. Can Nora give us the uh, topic for today, then, Vicky? Can you hear us snoring? I can. Okay, I'm, d- I'm just going to yeah. move her away. I light. No, I like it. I like the background noise. <laughs> You're going to have to get rid of it. We are we are a diverse uh, set of uh, people for a diverse audience. It's provided a nice bit of ASMR. Yes, <laughs> ASMR. ASMR. The Digital Twin Fan Club Podcast. Okay, so today we're going to talk about the why of digital twins. Last time we spoke, we covered uh, the what. We explained what we all believe the digital twin was um, and what we believe the industry um, believes the digital twin is at the moment. And so the next logical step is to discuss why we actually need this type, this type of technology. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Oh, the question there is, say, why do we need this type of technology? Is it a technology or is it a methodology? That's, the question. That's a good question. Why do we need this type of working, this approach to approach. Yeah. everything to do with data integrated into the physical digital world? Well, maybe it would be interesting if one of you guys who works closely with CDBB um, explains that from a perspective of the National Digital Twin. Your question there was, uh, what's the perspective of organisations like CDBB or others on why we need a digital twin? Yes. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because the use cases around digital twins, in, in my view, and this is kind of my take on it, uh, most people will promote or sell the idea of this aspirational utopian state where an asset is fully autonomous and integrated and can do all these great things itself completely enriched and connected to the physical and everything associated with it. And then the use cases that roll off that are quite plentiful in terms of, you know, better decision-making, um, better asset management, uh, data-driven decisions, similar to decision-making. And a lot of that you can easily conceptualize and can go, yes, I get that. I understand it. It's like watching a minority report. I understand what that could look like in the future. But in reality, I think there's quite a jump to get to that state and from where we are now. Um, so why, why do we need a twin? I think, if anything, it's the realization that at the moment we live in a very analog world, as much as we might think that we are digital. Um, we don't have a great connectivity between our physical and digital worlds, um, allowing us to reap the benefits of what having that, that link would produce. And therefore, um, by going down the path of implementing a twin, we're trying to bring these two worlds closer and closer together. Okay, so is it me or are there two? There are almost two phases here, as you say. That there is this uh, uh, this vision at the end, and there is a very clear why uh, for that. We've not gone into that, but we will do. Um, but there's also kind of the why today. Um, why would you do a digital twin today? It depends what your problem is, I think. And that's where we sometimes lose focus with new um, processes and new technologies. We think about the why for the tech or the why for the process rather than finding a problem that needs resolving and coming up with a, a technical solution. So it could be that um, you... Uh, a building operator is massively overspending on their heating bill or they know that they're inefficient and that they're failing to hit green standards. That's a, that's a legitimate problem. And actually by using a digital twin of that heating system that can allow it to operate in the most efficient way, you're solving that problem. I think we have to keep bringing it back to what the specific problems are. And the use cases, isn't it? And I think you're really right there because most people miss it's all about use case. They focus on the technology, they focus on the aspiration, and they fail to hit that there's an immediate use case you have to meet in order to probably get the investment to start doing it. So if we flip that around, in a way, uh, we started with the idea of why someone needs to have a digital twin. And the reason you might want it is because there are these use cases and purposes that you need to answer. Uh, and actually, there is nothing a digital twin can do that you can't do manually. It just takes forever to do it. You can send someone to take those measurements in those rooms. You can pay someone to sit there all day and measure the settlement of a bridge. Um, but the ability to stick sensors in places and to do simulations means that things that were cost prohibitive before 
are things that you can actually monitor and measure now to support those use cases. So we've got to the idea of now that you might want it because you can do stuff now that actually you couldn't afford to do before with this power of connecting the physical and the digital together. But it's never about need, it's always about want. It's interesting there because I've just I've uh, been working with uh, the water industry for just over a year now, and it's very interesting to see that there is a um, amongst the different utilities there are definitely uh, rich cousins and poor cousins in terms of the amount of sensing that they already have. So in terms of the aspirations that these different utilities have, they could, you know, they could be having an entire picture of how one treatment works works and understand that and they need to invest in that to put the sensing in place just to make that happen to be able to properly manage this because they are as you say visiting physically physically measuring physically inspecting and doing all that sort of stuff um, isn't entirely necessary but then there are other utilities that are already very well sensed it's probably not a word for applying sensors to something need a new verb uh sensorified there we go that's the word um so uh, <laughs> some of these are all very uh, well sensorified um that's now the word uh so they can their aspirations can be much bigger so that they can look at their entire network of catching the water the wastewater and how it gets uh, moved about and treated in different places and different ways so that they can have you know and you can kind of imagine that that that's an extra level of intelligence that you're adding to your management of your system you could be managing one asset that is performing um, a certain way but it could be performing much better I'm gonna, from my perspective i'm going to say the term that everyone loves at the minute on zoom meetings let's circle back around let's, let's say that term let's circle back around right everybody needs <laughs> <laughs> so if you go if you go back to uh say 2000 circa 2011 2012 everyone talked about how bim to fm was going to reduce the operating cost of assets and how bim level 2 would achieve x y and z financially for clients during the operational phase of the project has anyone got any proof that that's been achieved they're incredibly broad targets that's the problem and they're so <laughs> the, the the evidence is so subjective and that's why I think it's important so, to pinpoint to specific problems rather than just get better. That's not good. That's not target. So, Henry, go back to our experience in a previous life where we were working, or part of the business was a white-collar asset management firm. Their key unique selling point was they didn't go into a client and tell them what they needed to do. Their unique selling point was they spent six months understanding the client's operational process, their problems, their issues, how they ran their business, how they ran their assets. And then they started to build um, a solution around that. They didn't go into technology. They basically looked at how the client wanted, what the client wanted to do financially, business objectives, how they wanted the people to work. And then they started to build a solution. And I think that's how digital twin needs to be implemented as well it's not about here's here's a solution here's some new technology someone's produced so so the why for me it's connecting traditional white collar asset management and strategic asset management to a, a, a technology process because even though that asset management firm was really successful they still did everything through excel they didn't they didn't they weren't really a digitally enabled business it was still very much oh well we're a, a successful asset management firm uh, working with really big blue chip clients 
and the majority of their asset management process was done through Excel. They occasionally said you should use um, this tool or that tool or RBM Chiriga blah, 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 as an example, but they never, they didn't really have a digitally enabled process. So I think, as Simon mentioned, I think that's that's the gap that could be bridged in this space from my perspective. It's now we can circle all the way back around again to where we were back to back to. So who who is asking why in that situation? Because um, I think going back to that previous uh, to the BIM and the digital journeys, often it has felt to um, some groups that the client needs educating or the client doesn't understand. So who who is asking why? Is it the is it the FM consultants? Are they asking? Are they are they? Are they the ones that we need to be engaging with, or is it a bit of everybody? Do we need to be convincing clients? Do we need to be convincing these guys? I think it's everyone at the at the moment. It's the boots on the ground everyone. as well. Mm. Because I mean, it, the the biggest from from my perspective, trying to implement um, a platform on sites at the moment that assists with quality management. Um, you go in and you say, okay, you're going to use digital forms for instance, and the first thing you get is, well, what we're doing is, is fine. What's the benefit to me? I don't get it. And if these guys don't use the platform and use the forms, you're not getting the data that you need anyway, and nothing higher up works. And so that first level of yeah. um, persuasion, I think, are the people who are going to actually have to use that that tech or those processes on the ground. Yeah, and this is because most innovations that come in are normally technology driven. You know, what is someone will buy some drones and go, hey, look, these drones are pretty cool. How can we actually use those in our business? Or oh, I've just bought this software that does digital forms. You know, now let's make all our forms digital. Um, and then there'll be cynicism from people to say, well, hang on, all we've done is converted our existing process into the same process, but now online does that really help where as you're saying it needs to be process driven and actually you look at the process and you go look you do the same thing but using this form it saves us two percent down the line because we've actually managed to streamline the data collection and the configuration later on and it's added no extra burden onto you to use this form instead of the excel thing you normally do a good analogy of this and i'm gonna have to apologize for oh, oh your timing is a massive young lady doesn't agree with your comp- uh, no, information yeah, there. Yeah, Rowan's not very happy with what I've had to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the interesting thing to look at here is how technology has been implemented in retail. So if you take, for example, the um, self-service checkouts of a supermarket, talk about something that has been focused on cutting down... Buffer face. Cutting down, you cut out at cutting the, down. The experience of talking to a human. Uh, it's your Wi-Fi. Oh, he's gone. He's gone. Yes, yeah, he's got. I think. Uh, I Should think. I um, we'll come back to his retail experience. Jump on a Neil voice and do it for him. And <laughs> do your Neil voice. Do the Neil voice. Hello. <laughs> so Neil, think about the way that technology has been implemented in retail. So look at self checkouts. Now self checkouts have. You cannot parrot his point. You That's can't not okay. Take <laughs> he will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Saying about retail. Excellent yeah, point. That's it. Excellent <laughs> point, Simon. If we go back to that um, that on on site point that um, I think Dan made just before about um, winning people round, uh, it's even more. Um, 
direct than that for the for the guys on site so with a digital form for instance you say oh it might not save you any time but actually when you really look at the process that they're doing um, before they move to a digital form it does it saves them time because for a lot of people um, e even now they're c collecting data on bits of paper on site they're writing it down they're taking photos on their mobile and then they're going home in the evenings and spending their own time when they should be with their family uploading onto a document management system or something like that and but they don't realize that that's that doesn't it doesn't need to be like that. If you can collect that information and the data straight into a platform on site, that's instant time saving. Um, and sometimes it's just showing them that and the uh, live feedback on things like dashboards. So if you so, can say, from the moment you collect this information, it can be visible um, on this on this dashboard and it's, it's logged on everyone's system that you've completed your action. Um, there's no, ambiguity is what I'm trying to say in who's done what when they've done it how they've done it and it saves you having to go back if you're if you're uh, in maintenance it saves you having to go back three times and I know that was uh, that's something that is continually a problem uh, with maintaining assets that uh, you know go once to see if that's really the problem go twice with the part that's the wrong part and go back the third time hopefully with the right part um, but I, I like this approach that we're doing. We're, we're actually starting to uh, really get under this why of, of the different stakeholders' why. So I think we've had a good look there at um, people on site. And that could be, I think, during uh, any phase of an asset lifecycle, whether they're building or whether they're uh, in maintenance and operations. Um, somebody else come up with another one. <laughs> I think... Yeah, the, uh, Am I am I muted? Can, no, I no, you're fine. Go for it. So for me, um, thinking back to when I was involved more in BIM implementation, the why needs to say if you go to a major client, like a large client, that the why is really going to have to focus on a significant business problem for them to get buy-in to actually consider even doing it. You can't just go in and say, well, digital twins are good because X, Y, and Z. You really need to evidence with real business problems that digital twins can solve. Not necessarily, oh, we, we just think it's a good idea. We have proof that because you've done this, or if you do this, that it's going to solve X, Y, and Z for you. That's an interesting, yeah, that's interesting because it brings it back to the mandate as well. So the BIM mandate did so much for encouraging people to use BIM on sites, but it also um, was a little bit, of uh, not a blocker or a barrier, but it caused some problems as well because it turned it into a box ticking exercise at the same time. So people were doing BIM in order to um, comply to the mandate rather than finding out which parts of BIM they needed to be doing to deliver their project in the best way. So that's interesting what we need to make sure that we don't turn the implementation of digital twins into. Because that's what happened with um the construction design management rules as well it was supposed to be something that was to apply to everybody and it's the analogy i've always used for bin digital and now digital twins is that uh, if you, you you undervalue the process you can tick that box but you undervalue the process if you just have we have a person for that we have you know, somebody is the lead designer and they're doing all of the, the, the key work, but they need to go and engage with everybody to do their job because really it was something that everybody was supposed to be doing and reporting into um, somebody. So it's the same, it was the same thing with BIM, absolutely. Um, you cannot have a, a bot for that, a, a BIM bot. You start seeing, yeah, a digital twin guy 
like we used to have a bim guy or girl. I did say bod. You were much more appropriate than me then. Yes. Uh, all right, I'm on the laptop now. So, 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 Neil, Simon gave us a very interesting anecdote about the retail site. <laughs> if you had anything you wanted to share. Do you want to add to that? What was the retail anecdote? He said something um, about um, checkouts. Yes. It's a really good point, actually. Whatever you're about to say, that's what his anecdote was. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> well, then you I'll ask my case. Well, yeah, well, just, you fully agree with my anecdote there, don't you, Neil? <laughs> Point well made. This is going to make editing this an absolute nightmare. <laughs> no, no, I don't want to duplicate. Simon didn't say anything. We were, oh, just, okay. we're, we're trying to wind you up. Okay. Um, or did okay. I? <laughs> I'm in the. Uh, I'm going to get through what I can once I've got the kids' mode, so <laughs> going to be bulletproof. <laughs> um, so you can hear me. All good. So. Oh, I've got all this round. I don't think this is going to work. I think I'm going to... Retail. Retail, self-checkout. Look at how retail dealt with this situation. So I think connecting back to what Jonathan was saying is um, look at retail and its implementation of technology in, in retail is... You're okay. You're okay. Stay the course. Do you think of technology and implementation of technology in retail? Yeah, sorry, I just... I can't think, so. think and have all this stuff happening at the same time. I think I'm going to get up. Yeah, that's no worries. But you can sit there and say pithy things. I'm just going to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I could do it. I could do it. I could do it. Right, one more go. So, so, let's, in response to Jonathan's point about the FM managers, I think we could look back at retail and look at how self-service checkout, self checkouts have been implemented in retail. Now talk about something that has been focused on the cutting down of costs of a business and not against the user experience of the customer. I, mean, I don't know about you, but some of the uh, brands of self-service checkouts drive me crazy. They just, they've made my popping in and out of the shop much longer. And I think, one thing that we have an opportunity to do is to have a user focus on our implementation technology through through the platform of, of Digital Twins because I think if we look at how we've implemented technology on projects, it's all been about a point tool to meet a particular need, not the, the systems of needs that need to be met to deliver that project. Um, I think in the IT world, they call them digital touch points. And, you know, if you think about the digital touch points on a project, you know, you've got Outlook, you've got some sort of 3D modeling tool, you've got a 3D viewing tool, you might have one that's based on your desktop, you'll have a 3D modeling view on a browser, and you've got some sort of P6 or Microsoft project, you know, that list of technology is huge. Those digital touch points to make a decision are massive. We don't really have any opportunity to tie them all together to, to do anything meaningful. So I think to go back to that, that retail example is that, uh, uh, and I think it happens in a lot of um, applications of technology where industries are further ahead, where they're still focusing on the, a very narrow business problem where retail is, people are quite expensive. How can we distribute those to do something else? And we'll, we'll swap those with a piece of technology, but they didn't quite think about the, the customer experience. No, and that's interesting. And you see now that places like Amazon have got Amazon Go, where there's almost the equivalent of the shop, where you can just pick up the items and it'll log it as you're in the store. 
So that's gone even further and it's actually removed the checkout element entirely. And you can just go in, grab the stuff and leave and it logs what you've got in your basket, um, which you know, fixes that problem in one way. Uh, but again, you know, it's just an- another point as opposed to that whole system, as you mentioned. Mm. And I think the interesting thing going back, to, you know, if you speak to your average facility manager about BIM, they just scoff at you and go, it's ridiculous. And I think the, the interesting thing about our vision of technology previously about, oh, you know, we're going to connect sensors to models and save money on heating bills. And it's like, well, they've got BMS systems and people in FM are relatively cheap to um, to uh, other types of resources so I could just send someone down there to fix it why would I need to have this in like millions of pounds of implementation of sensors for my hospital when my facility you know that implementation costs more than my facilities team right now so why would I do that and I think um, you know people don't quite think about you know the, the wage rate for, for people is an important factor in the implementation, in implementation of technology we haven't really thought about that I don't think and I think it's interesting actually when you use um, self-checkouts and Amazon as examples um, that's a, a clear example of uh, tech making things easier most of the time but when something goes wrong that customer experience really really falls so it might increase the customer satisfaction the majority of the time but when things go wrong they really go wrong and that's the thing with um digital and tech sometimes like they they might smooth the process for the majority of the time but you have to have stronger uh, more robust plans in place for when things don't go right because you might not have people around or you might have you might not have people with the right skills around to fix the problem mm. and the amazon go thing it's it's like the um the self-service checkout is is uh like replacing you know when we replace uh, physical forms with digital forms that's that we've taken our process and we've we've put it online um whereas the amazon go system is is like saying what are we trying to do it's starting at the beginning and just reimagining the service entirely um and i think uh that's that's always going to be a risk in implementing any new technology that uh, you just try and implement your existing process and put it on the cloud and i think we've been doing that since the dawn of uh I don't know what the verb is now. Digitization, digitalization, digital implementation. If only we had a, a, a wordsmith, Dan, what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, if you're talking about the whole business trans, uh, change, then it's digital transformation. If it's about embedding technologies to streamline a process, it's digitalization. Thank you. I need to put uh, Industry so, 4.0 somewhere in that as well. So, <laughs> if is it, it's, a, it's a valid point, that, Andrew, because even, even on very heavily... To go back to uh, your point, Henry, on um, digitization, digital transformation, even on very compliant BIM projects, the control document is still a PDF in the majority of, majority of cases. So it's like we have digitized everything, but then it still comes down to a PDF document, and that's what people want to issue because that's what they're comfortable with. So do you think we could end up in a – unless we change more stuff – are we going to end up with digital twins and PDFs? You've got to start with, um, you've got to make sure you have a good common language. You have, you have to have your classification systems um, set and in place and all of your, basically what the OIR um, 
and AIR and all that kind of stuff was originally intended to develop for a client like that that foundation of good data and information management and technology to then build upon so I get yeah I get what you're saying you can't if you just bring in sexy new tech it's like a, a sticking an expensive sticking plaster an interesting you know I, I think connecting to our previous podcast and talking about the the progression of the internet and I think an, an interesting thing that that happened you know the the likes of Tim Berners-Lee sat there and went you know the current version of the internet is just us sharing documents it's it's moving um document-based view of of, of that network around and the, the likes of Tim Berners-Lee said well we need to connect the data not just have loads of pretty web pages so the first version of <laughs> so the first version of the internet was, you know, web pages, HTML, and you know, the index and searching of us who've made our wonderful web pages in 1997 or whatever. Um, and the, the view was, well, how do we connect the, you know, the semantic web together? And you know, this this creation of this thing called the resource distribution framework was the start of connecting that data together. You know, we've got knowledge graphs and all those types of techniques where has made the modern internet what it is today. And I think that journey between us creating web pages of our favorite fan site and, you know, the old diary websites and all those types of things all the way through to where they are today, where they're not just, you know, if anything, all the traffic on the internet is no longer us looking at web pages. The, you know, a business needing a web page to go to is almost dead. What it's now uh, is, you know, a, a, a nexus of data sets that, that talk to each other through semantic web technology. And I think that's the thing for us is that we're, we're still in web 1.0 let's move documents around, you know, let's move the PDFs around. I think for us, we don't have to work too hard to create that vision of the digital twin. Let's look at how the internet works, extends that usage of the internet to connect the assets that we need to know more about and answer questions about more quickly. And that's, it, maybe it's as simple as that. Challenge me. Well, no, um, it's, it's exactly that. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's come out of places like the ODI about actually the, the model that we use for developing this idea of the digital twin it could be based on tintlet um but uh, you know the point being that you know from this question about the why bit is that you know if we just end up with a shiny new bit of tech but we end up with a bunch of documents at the end have we actually helped someone do something or have we sold them a very expensive piece of software and then it's actually not changed the way that people work, uh, which is the concern. Um, and, you know, and not, not to start a debate now, because it's probably more suitable for podcast one, but I think a BMS is a digital twin. And actually, you know, if you go through the criteria of, is, is there something physical, is there something digital, and is there a connection, that BMS is already a digital twin. Um, so in that situation uh, that we were talking about earlier, surely the question is, how do you connect the BMS to business decision making better? Um, not, you know, how do we replace it with a bunch of expensive sensors and get rid of the FM guys? And I think that's that's the real good question: is how, like, how do you integrate it, not replace it? And just before we move on, I'd like to point out that Dan said, "Yeah, you're right." So he agreed with me. Thank you. <laughs> That's Neil with the hashtag what Dan said and hashtag what Dan said is agreeing with me. <laughs> um, I think I think that Sorry, was a really um, a really good point though from Dan um, about the BMS system and because it's something that I have 
thought but have been a little bit too nervous to say out loud in case people go well don't be an idiot of course it's not um and and that then highlights another um slight problem that we have in, in the industry is that people assume that it needs to be more complicated than it does sometimes and that then alienates a lot of uh, well probably about 80 percent of the industry and that's what this fan club is all about isn't it it's, it's taking that difficult language and those complicated concepts and making them less complicated and plain language and, and opening up the conversation for for um everyone to join in then it brings us to the question of digital twins how different people interpret data and information how they see what is in front of them and that is then when we come to analytics isn't it and um and, and biases and can having too much data cause you to make incorrect decisions interesting you say about there being too much data so if we go back to good old days of statistics at school we, want, we know that one thing is if you can have too much data because if it's too noisy you can't extract any useful patterns from it so i think the balance that we need to make is what's more dangerous the bias that's placed upon the algorithms in our base technology or human biases um, if I had to vote, I think I'd probably I'd rather go with the data biases than the human ones because at least we can measure um, the bias in, in the data sets. You know, the issue that we've got at this moment in time is that a lot of what we do is based upon previous knowledge, experience and opinion. It's not really based upon previous data. If you look at the rules of thumb in, in engineering books and a lot of our design process is based upon, um, you know, you know, make, making our previous experience quite shiny. I was going to say polishing a turd, but um, keep that in there if you want. But you know, we, you know, it's it's these, some of the dysfunction that we have is due to that poor, poor documentation and knowledge. So I, I'm on the side of let's stick with the data, let's stick with the scientific process, and it will improve over time. But we will have to put up with the biases in the in the short term. I completely agree with you and there's that um, innate optimism that causes human beings problems as well. We we will assume that every issue we have is because of a, an anomaly. So, oh, well, that was an extraneous factor or that wasn't our fault. And that's why we keep making the same mistakes with the same patterns is because we refuse to see those those patterns. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. That's the definition of insanity, isn't it? You keep doing the same thing but expecting different results. A apparently it's not. But if you if you look at if you look in the English dictionary, it's not. But anecdotally <laughs> on the internet, it is. I think it was uh, it was Einstein. If you say who Einstein, said it, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Is this like Henry Ford said? If I'd asked people what they wanted, they'd say faster horses, which he Apparently. never said. I, I think, think he did. He didn't say it. Famously, <laughs> no one ever said anything. <laughs> Throughout history, we've always been mute. I've got a question for a why that's quite poignant, um, given the current situation. So, obviously, we're all stuck at home because of a, a pandemic, which is a bit weird. Um, it's very, very strange. Could, would, or should, would have digital, would, if our industry in our country had had digital twins, would it have supported our reaction to it? Or would it have added any value in the way we're dealing with it? 
could businesses have reacted differently? Could hospitals be managed better? Could the pandemic be managed in a, in a better way if our country was working towards a national digital twin? It's interesting because it's all about the uh, the sort of data that you're uh, collecting. Because I'm thinking, you know, this is uh, the case of the general use case versus the specific use case. And uh, where countries have uh, really gotten on top of it, they have a lot of social control. So um, in South Korea, they... Uh, no way they are tracing your phone's position um the government and if you are within x distance of somebody else who had uh coronavirus then you get tested i don't know about people who don't have phones they just they just get left to die maybe i'm not sure probably not um but there is a technology uh enabler there that wouldn't i don't think would happen in the UK, because I think people would not want to share that data. Maybe, maybe this will change people's minds, but I don't know. I think this, what is acceptable to the general public, is going to be a huge um, barrier and potentially opportunity, uh, depending on how this pandemic goes, to whether or not we want that sort of control. So that when things really go wrong, we know where people are in the buildings you know, through digital twins, we know how the roads are being used through the digital twins. We, and we can track and trace people on this sort of emergency quasi military footing. I think it would be massively helpful. Um, but I think that huge barrier of, um, is it acceptable to the general populace is the real question there. And this is where my, my favorite data anecdote comes in. Um, so in, uh, New York, they, um, I, th- I think it was through Uber, but I'd have to double check, released m- millions of tra- uh, travel to bits of data where they had start point, end point, drop-off times, all in theory anonymized, um, that they had to provide to the city and make publicly available. So there are all these data sets that you could, you could have to track the way that people traveled taxi-wise. The problem was that when people would go on something like Instagram and take photos of celebrities coming out of taxis and you had the, the license number of the taxi present, you could then work out whose trip that was and reverse engineer it back to where that person left from. And it had things like tip data and stuff as well. So you could see who were, who were being tied asses and who were actually situation so if we get to the point where we're monitoring the flow of people we then get into a very dangerous point when there might be a strenuous not strenuous a um a disparate data set somewhere that could link that and de-anonymize that data and i think that's the scary bit and that as you say henry the more we get to a kind of controlling dare i say sort of orwellian sort of system where people are being monitored that way that's how you could have potentially managed the situation but you know do you really want a a government text on your phone because you stood 1.8 meters um within someone else um you know that's that's probably not a, a a useful way to do these things but certainly maybe from a uh, how to simulate and do best practice within a hospital for um, reducing transfer of, oh, I'm trying to think of the best way, uh, of cross-contamination is probably the best word I can use for now. That's just something, you know, something a digital twin could have helped with, but I don't see how the national digital twin could have helped with 
population movements and those sorts of things other than potentially trends of which of these cities are commuter cities which ones are people generally stay in themselves you know because somewhere like swindon or reading i imagine it's been quite bad without looking at the data because they're the ones who travel in and out to london all the time so it's interesting because i've been uh very interested to see the general reaction and it does feel that we've gone underreact underreact massively overreact um and you're seeing people really really go into town cleaning things and are we focusing our efforts in the right place do we need to clean the side of the bus is and the example that i saw that i was just like isn't it, wouldn't it be more important to clean all the handles? So maybe in the digital twin world, you know, we could have a, a pandemic level maintenance regime wherein, you know, we've already, we've, while we were calm and we were in planning mode, we have identified those areas that are touched most and those areas that, you know, all the door handles and all the railings and all those sorts of things. And we really, really focus our efforts on that and we know what that looks like so that that's helping plan so on that point of tracing people um have you seen the community mobility report from google yes i've only uh, seen that because you you uh you've shown me and now i've learned if you google this you can find yours yeah so um i think the interesting thing is the latency of the report you know, it takes days for them to generate that. This is Google. Um, and uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> what's in the report, buddy? Um, so in this report is um, essentially the changes of mobility between different types of activity. So we have um, the, the Google report for mobility changes covers um, the, the, the change of movement according to their data on people for different sectors. So retail recreation, grocery and pharmacy, parks, transit stations, workplaces, and residential. And it's quite interesting moving across the world, looking at the what, what happens with the movement of people in these respective places. So retail and recreation just fell you know it's dropped to well in the uk it dropped to sort of 80 90 percent quite sharply but then grocery and pharmacy had like a big peak and then it's falling and it's now just going past their baseline so their baseline being sort of average activity on google maps and how they they track people etc oddly though on on that though residential's only gone up 15 percent compared with it which i think is really interesting if you look at the uk one um that everything else has gone down, as you expect, because none of us are meant to be there. But you'd expect the counterance to be that we're all at home instead. Which but we obviously not. are, but it's somehow, I saw that, it's not picking it up properly, is it? And of course, like, when it says, like, workplace, transit stations, parks, that could be the same person going between all four of them. So the baseline's higher. And then it's a different, obviously, when you've got everyone at household, at home. But yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I would have thought that would be different. It's interesting. It's obviously that measurement, I think, um, because I, I for a, a year or so, tracked all of my movements on Google and just kept a complete log. So I didn't, uh, I could see because I was traveling a lot. And it does seem to have certain gates for you. So if you, it, it's probably not measuring if you're going outside unless you're going outside. So maybe those people are in the garden. Maybe. This is an interesting Well, I think it's... So if, we have, if, if we have scenarios where data sets aren't complete or are not, not giving the full picture of something, do we run the risk then as well of making decisions where we are missing out variables? Yes, and this is... Um, I think this is... Uh, I think it gets back to our 
get to our point with the why that we came back. So not to, not to steal Jonathan's tagline, but to circle back around. Um, the, the idea that um, why you might want to do it is that, you know, someone could sit there and actually count all these people and survey what they're doing, but that's impossible. So we can make decisions based on data sets we, we could never possibly have before, which is a great reason why to do this sort of thing. But at best, the data will only allow you to form correlations. It won't show causes. Um, and the classic one I've always enjoyed is the... Um, Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster example, which is the the graph that shows the relationship between global warming and population of pirates. And the idea that if we all became pirates, according to the data, you know, the global temperature would reduce. Uh, because as pirates have been dwindling, global temperature has been rising. And you know, <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, uh, well, that's the, the correlation and causation, isn't it? I think one of the last, first lessons you have in, <laughs> in, in so. statistics is you can do a randomised data set and do, you know, the correlation of the instance of tomatoes and, tom- and potatoes and you'll get um, some form of correlation yeah. between the two. But it's... But it's nonsense. But I think it's 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 interesting because you know one one of the things about this you know so we've got these massive reductions in these areas you know eighty five percent for retail forty fifty percent for retail fifty percent for parks seventy five percent for rail and transit and fifty percent for for marketplace and then fifteen percent for residential and it shows that you know the incompleteness or the 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 re- the representation of the citizen in their sort of residential area is something that is not um, easy to identify in data sets. And I think that's interesting when we talk about the national digital twin type stuff is that there's one thing to have a national digital twin of a railway. Um, that's only going to show you a very small aspect of somebody's life. And then we're talking about the broader benefits of that we're trying to bring from um, a national digital twin is uh, you know that the greater public good but that gap between you know, the really difficult thing of having a digital twin of a railway to the broader public good is a huge gap and you can see here that not even google can capture it so it's, it's definitely um, an interesting problem to, to think about. that's the thing isn't it i think that's something that we really need to think about uh, as a society is that uh, doing you know data for the public good it's a huge opportunity that we have and there are going to be and there are uh technology driven businesses um such as amazon google apple uber who are making an absolute packet out of the reduced overheads that they've given themselves um and we aren't leveraging their the data that they're collecting and they are complying uh with the law uh, and they'll continue to do so, since we're not talking about tax, um, although they are complying with those laws, um, just maybe by the letter, not by the spirit. I'm going off on the tangent, save myself. Um, what I'm saying is is the uh, the data piece is, is something that is going to be almost incidental, I think, and we need to be ready with policy that's going to um, reserve the right to uh, use some of that. But that kind of goes back to the do people trust their governments with their data? And I'd say, certainly in the UK, the answer is no, not really. Even locally, if we take it if we take it out of the realms of the national digital twin and bring it back to um, digital twins of, of buildings, does that mean that along with um, new processes, procedures and, and tech to implement digital twins, there are new roles as well, including um, qualified data analysts? 
and people to make the right decisions based on the information they think, is that just a change in the nature of the role of the facilities manager? Um, or is it, is it a whole new role within itself? Yeah, and then that idea of digital literacy and the skills people need, you know, should everyone go on a stats course so that they can realise if a piece of data is an outlier or if it's actually a problem they need to address. Um, the other weird bit on that overall data aspect is what, what else could be twinned? And, you know, I like the idea of um, could I be twinned and could I be the custodian of my own medical data? You know, we're talking about trust of public bodies with information. Why can't I be the person who looks after my own medical records? And actually, I choose to share them with the relevant person, not have someone else use them. And, you know, in the future, potentially get money off of selling aggregates and anonymized bits well, out of my data. Like, so this is, a really, this is a really interesting debating point because there was... Um, I was at a pitching fest a couple of years ago at UCL and there was a guy there that presented um, a tool for your browser that allowed you to monetize your PIP, so your personal information profile, which is you know, a medical version, you know, it, it, sorry, the internet version of your medical records and saying, you know, you can earn, um, you know, say, I can't remember the order of magnitude, let's say it's $100 a year on your personal profile. Um, but that compared to the collective investment that Google makes by exploiting your PIP and can give you $5,000 worth of services for free. Um, so I think there's one, the balance of actually the, the economy of scale of collecting people's data and its value is something that we have to be, have to think about because Google provide all these great services for free, but they exploit those PIPs. If everybody became custodian of their own PIP, we would lose access to those free services, for example. And I think, from a medical records perspective, um, you know, in America they talk about um, you know using technologies like the blockchain to be the custodian of uh, the custodian of their own own data means that you know, for you and I that can make a decision. Sorry, there's a fully naked child in my kitchen, which I apologise about. Question one: Is it your child? It is. It is my child. That's fine. So, with respect to owning your own medical data and you being able to make choices about who can use it and if and monetizing it is the exploitation of poor people in that respect you'd be less desperate to sell your data to unscrupulous medical practices and um, i think we lose that protection that people have with not owning their medical data at this time so i think there's there's a debate point um and i don't know what what do you think I don't know, because you could, I think, in the UK, be sponsored to have a tattoo on your face. Because I know there was a big thing in America, I think in the noughties and late 90s, people were getting tattoos sponsored to have tattoos on their faces. Absolutely. And so that is, you know, that's something you have ownership of, your body, and you can go and sell that to somebody else. Now, I have a little bit more faith than you, maybe, Neil, on that. I think, I think yes, people, some people will make silly decisions um, but I guess it, I'm making the argument for self-determination. Well, uh, it's, it's the role of the protection and who, 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 who provides our consumer rights and all that type of stuff is the, the next evolution of those 
types of things because I, I, you know, international institutions for providing that protection are a bit shaky for our basic protections. Yes. Um, we're talking about a higher level of uh, complexity in those those types of things that we need to protect. And those I think, things it's, I think it's something needs- that we need to have a, a, an open discussion about and highlight it to people. But those, I think those two, uh, the, the point that you made and the point that I made are the kind of the, going to be the two main camps of oh, it's all a nanny state and we should be able to determine our own destiny versus we have a duty of care to people and we need to make sure they are safe. Especially in the early stages as well. That's the thing. It's it's very easy with a tattoo on the face to see the implications or to understand the implications personally. Whereas when we're talking about data and information, it's slightly harder to imagine the implications of selling that information or passing that on to someone because it's it's not as visual and visceral so that's a yeah it's something else to to consider how how some people will not comprehend the nature of the value Um, of their own data and i think an interesting analogy you've got to to show that is look at the the global response to covid and how strong that's been but look at the outcomes of misinformation on the internet to things like uh, measles, anti-vaccinations and all these other, all these other aspects where, you know, the health impacts on misinformation will be significantly higher than COVID, but because it's so difficult to identify and deal with, it's sort of brushed and left the side. Um, maybe I've made a very controversial statement there, but I think it's 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 very interesting to see the the human behaviour against something that is tangible and is you know it's it's got the it's got that backing globally to something that has a much higher impact to the other thing, but it's really difficult to identify and do something well, about. Let's use global warming as a slightly less controversial version of that it's like we have all of the data to suggest that it's a, a serious global issue and, that, and yet you so i need to, so we need to hold on i'm gonna sorry to cut across you there i'm not being controversial and let's be completely clear that we're not providing a platform for that to be validated it's not controversial the uh, the whole thing about anti-vaccination is misinformation and we just need to make sure that that you know sorry i'm drawing a straw line on it's not controversial and we're not providing any platform for that to be validated just an example so that's a good point no that's fair enough that's fair enough um, uh, sorry go ahead so i think so just just to just to jump in there okay Saturn, listen i obviously asked the question of would would digital twins have supported covid or uh, uh, what about at a very basic level say for an individual business or individual collection of businesses that had assets all over the world, um, say someone like EE as an example, do you think them having some kind of digital twin of, of something, say for example, all their assets in 3D, data being fed to them, no the ability to understand where the staff are in their assets to think that, that would have supported their health and safety executives response to COVID mm-hmm. just to understand at a basic level where their staff were. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think, think even, Oh, sorry, Dan, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if it would be considered a digital twin actually before I launch into this, but um, <sighs> the fact is if we had, um, if we had really great uh, versions of, of 
models available at people's fingertips. This, this period whilst in construction that we're not physically constructing, we could be using to do um, intricate virtual mock-ups. So um, play by play of how we will construct as soon as we get back on site and use it as like a dress rehearsal and that kind of thing. Um, and so I, I think in terms of BIM, that, that could have been a bit of assistance, but actually I'm not, I'm not convinced as I'm speaking that that, that roams into digital twin territory. A little bit. So, um, I, I thank you, Vicky. I, I, two bits. One is the maybe because my one of my favourite adages is if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So certainly, from a if you happen to be measuring the right bit of data to help you, then that might be possible. However, the difficulty you've got is knowing what that data is and and how it can tangentially help. So you know, even something as simple as we go back to everyone's favourite digital twin, the BMS system. Um, knowing that less people are in the office, you actually could go into the BMS and then you're saving money by not heating a space that no one's in. So actually you've made a decision based on data that you've got that has a positive economic impact on your business. Now, you know, that's, that's doable in this scenario. But if we're talking about people, you then get into this dangerous bit of almost that kind of Amazon world where you stick monitors on people to work out you know, whether they're well or not and whether they've had their allowed two-minute bathroom break in the last four hours or whatever their policy is in the warehouses. And, you know, it's only at that point you really start to qualify it as a twin because otherwise it's an asset register and you've got all these other bits and pieces because you haven't got that link from physical back. And one of the dangerous bits, and this will this is not a good topic for a, for a weekend, is the, the, the thin line between simulations and design using things like digital twins and data sets. Because if you've got sets that represent now you maybe simulate what might happen with them but when you start designing with it it loses the link back to physical because then the digital and physical have no resemblance anymore and it stops being a twin at that point because you don't have a link back you have a hypothetical what if and then at that point it's really just simulations and 3d modeling or, or other demodeling, depending on if you throw in your time element and whatever else so i've got to say i will always argue that I like X, Y, Z time are definitely dimensions. Price is not a dimension. Just sorry. I get very upset about that. If, if we discover if physicists discover that money is a prime dimension of the universe, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> so whilst, whilst we're on, whilst we're on, if, if Dan gets his adage, I want to have mine because the, the economist has got to strike, strike back on that one. So uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Goodhart's law. No. So Goodhart's law says, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. So uh, one way in which it can occur is individuals trying to anticipate the effect of a policy and then taking actions that alter its outcome. And so, the classic example is cobra farming, which is my, one of my favourite adages, which was uh, in, uh, during the British Empire in India, there was a big cobra problem. So the British Empire in its wisdom said, right, we'll pay everybody to, uh, to hunt the cobras. So of course the local people started farming the cobras. Then the British Empire discovered everyone was doing this to make money, scrapped the thing, and everybody released their cobras. There were then more cobras. And that is, yeah, that is that point work out to game the system if you can yeah absolutely
And the is law that, of unintended consequences. Not to be something. not to be controversial, is that 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 is quite similar to the construction industry. As soon as there's an opportunity, everyone games it. Yeah. You always will. It's as simple as it. uh, it's capitalism, and it's already happening in the digital twin space. People know there is this new thing coming, and everyone is developing a technology platform to try and jump on the financial bandwagon. Becoming a product. The amount of yep, creating a product and a technology rather than focusing on the methodology. Mm-hmm. BIM, BIM was the same. BIM's absolutely the same. Uh, BIM adoption and BIM consultancy, BIM tech. It's just it. It's capitalism, sadly. So maybe Unintended. we need to be careful that we don't we don't grow our own cobras and launch them into uh, construction. Well, I think we will. That'd but the really, fact of the matter that'd is that'd be really exciting. I think the, the thing is, whatever we do, there will be someone manipulating the the the, the process to to capitalise on it. And what we have to do is just be very agile and resolve those problems and react to them when they happen. That that's the thing. I think I've got another. I've got to, just to to focus back on our podcast a little bit. Are we, than are we circling back, Jonathan? Are we uh, back? No, we're catapulting forward. Oh, nice. And that's my. I don't know why even that's someone. What about? Is it, is it possible to touch base offline these days? Because that's a good question. That used to be another phrase. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's possible Maybe. to touch base offline. <laughs> well, I've got a late, I've got a list of phrases I wanted to put in this uh, in this podcast. Let me just see if I. Oh, can he actually does. He's actually consulting a digital device, um, ladies and gentlemen. Um, let's do some blue blue sky thinking with an idea shower to action a project going forward with a brainstorm. Idea shower sounds we'll, rude. I don't know why. And climb the strategic staircase as well. Let's climb get the strategic out. Let's, no, but this goes back to the bomb villain that I'm trying to look like. I, I actually is. genuinely had a point, by the way. Oh, so, no, you didn't. This was I the did. point, wasn't it? <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. So to, uh, let's just drill down and get back into the loop. So to go back to the why, I think one of the reasons Digital Twin has emerged and the CDBB guys can um, comment on this is BIM to FM, the BIM to FM as a concept has wholly just about failed in the built environment. It, it really has got zero to minimal traction. Us, um, the, the design consultants throwing information at clients has just not stuck at all. I mean, everyone's like, wow, I've created a really cool asset database. I've got massive spreadsheets. We've stuck to all the standards. There you go, clients. Clients have gone, literally don't want any of that. Don't even understand that. Don't know why I've got that. Thoughts? Well, I wondered, could we could, we, thoughts. could we try, could we, could we try and do five Y's on your Y? See where we end yeah. up. Five Y's. Okay. So, so everyone's going to go around. So my Y. Well, we need to, like, we need to agree the next Y from that one. And then we agree that one, we Y that one. And we go down five times, <laughs> see what happens. Oh, I see what you're doing. How about that? Okay. Crafty. Right. Let's, All right, let's play the game. Let's play the game. So if I understand right, Ben, my, my why building on Jonathan's why would be uh, why weren't the facility management as a domain consulted to form a solution that actually helped them out as opposed to throwing a pile of Excel sheets and data at them? I guess why? then the next my next why would be well, when they started to receive data and information being thrown at them, why didn't they respond with, well, this is what we need. Why haven't we had any feedback? Go on, Henry. I want to just answer it. I can't. I know, I know. I'm breaking the system as soon as you got a rule. In my head, I'm thinking, you remember the Southern Regional College Project, Henry? 
mm. where we were end-to-end including asset management and it was the biggest collection. It was, we, we had the perfect opportunity in that space to do something really good and the whole process just fell down, didn't it, really? Just because of procurement, cost, everything. Ah, every, everything there's just, a good remember, why. There's a good why. Because, yeah, that one of the big whys there was... Um, uh, why do we have to jump through so many hoops to just get something that's very simple done? That's that was somebody else's question, um, but it might it might fit nearly here. Is there because I, I was linked off that one as well, and says so something on the space of why are the people who understand it and understand what needs to be done not in positions of power and responsibility to get it done? So, so then, why, why aren't those people in a position of a, of power? Why do they not feel enabled to upskill themselves, or why are we unable to upskill them to a point where they can make better decisions? I think, unfortunately, that falls down to the fact that people with technical know-how aren't normally those with strategic or political know-how. So, or age uh, demographic. I've got another huge why to throw in the mix. Why is our entire industry built on capital cost rather than? running cost and operational value the entire industry is built on the fact that how do we build it on site for the cheapest possible is that that definition of it being construction industry rather than by construction operations industry it's just it's legacy then is what you're saying which is fair because the focus is on that it's capex this, the the SRC project was a perfect example, Henry, where um, the OPEX and the CAPEX was completely disconnected. Even though we were in, char- in, in charge of it, the client was like, well, no, it's not part of our procurement process to even consider how we're going to run this asset until we've built it. <laughs> so, so, why, sorry. so why, why are those two things, why are those two things separated? Exactly. Yeah, why, aren't we, why aren't we building an in- industry rather than the construction industry? Mm-hmm. Well, is it, is, okay, here's a really important question for everyone. Little tangent: Is it Totex or Totex? I, I, I use Operation Opval. Oh, okay. Opval. <laughs> Opval. What is that? Where are you, where are you from? <laughs> Operational value. I call it Totex. Yeah, Totex. Totex. Mm. So you'd like be, you'd be an Opvalologist. But would. But is total expenditure the key metric? Well, I'd imagine that the the separation between the two is purely, and here we go, it's transactional cost problem. Where <gasps> is there have, friction there as well? There is tons of friction. There's always friction. We, we, ju- we just have to bound a problem within, um, within a space that we can calculate it, right? So capital expenditure on making an extension of my house is relatively straightforward to do. So I'm, I'm going to do that. Tying that calculation into, you know, the, the, my, the, the, future, the future value that I'm going to get from the ease of transactions in having an extension of my house is an abstract concept. So I think total expenditure is an abstract concept and it's just, it requires simulation. It requires processing of past data that we, we haven't got, the data for the process, fair, the processes and the techniques to do. To be it. fair, capital expenditure is often, I think, the built environment doesn't have the best reputation for nailing those that number either. Because quantity surveyors just count the bricks and then times it by a factor, don't they? 
hang on, maybe if we, oh, mean. Why, if we oh. come back to the why of digital twins, part of that why could be um, it will it will tie all these things together. It will force the industry to start seeing the timeline of a, a project from planning through to demolition. Well, nice, I, nice. Bring it all. Bring us all together, with, Vicky. Thank you. I would. I so, would love. Go on, Jonathan. No, go on, go on, Dan. I feel like you're going to make the same point. I say, I, Cobra. <laughs> I would. I, I would love to see that world, but I don't think digital twits will get us there because I think mm. the problem is it's cultural and it's how organisations are set up. So when I first got into practice, I worked for a the local council down here in Cardiff. Um, so one organisation, you know, and one part of the business would do the capital costings for new schools, other part of the business in the same organization is doing all the cost for the operation. Uh, we designed a, well, so we, I designed a passive house primary school. We, we had people in, we did the testing, PHPP came back as passed. I was pretty chuffed, you know, designing passive house, go me. Um, went back to the client, we said there's a potentially 10% uplift on what we originally programmed for. Um, they turned around and said no. And they said, we have a fixed capital budget. If we take 10%, uh, give you 10%, that's 10% that comes out of another school in our program, no chance. If you want to talk to the operational side of the business and you want to get money off them, you go for it. You know, talk to that side of the business, they've got a six-year backlog of preventative maintenance. They can't even afford to do what they're doing now, let alone give someone a bit of money because mm -hmm. it's to invest in the future. It's that classic comic of the cart with square wheels, someone saying they're too busy to swap them over for round ones. And you know, while the data can expose that, I think you can't change the way a business is structured to enable that. I think nothing will change overnight. And that's, that is, you've perfectly summed up everything that's wrong with the industry. Um, and by, by um, establishing, using, managing digital twins, we're not going to fix that problem. But I do think it is a step in the right direction. Direction, And by further digitalizing and further understanding the life cycle of assets and appreciating that, we'll move further and further towards potentially different contract types, different ways of setting up businesses. There'll be disruptors in the industry um, and we will start to work differently, but it will take a very, very long time. I think it's adapt or die for us. Uh, and I think the interesting thing to go back, Dan, when you opened up what you were saying uh, with respect to like the vision of the digital twin, and it's not gonna, it's not going to achieve that. I think it's let's look at the evangelists of the internet and look at the outcomes of the internet. All right, we've had, don't get me wrong, it's been profound and its impact on business models in the world has been great. But then, has the outcome of it been as positive as they? imagined it looking at the, the what's happening with social media disinformation and what have you so mm. an interesting projection forward yeah it's interesting isn't it it's a, it's it's been a it's just another platform for us to do human behaviors on and i think um with somebody who's very interested in you know science fiction and all that sort of stuff uh, i think people tend to pin their hopes and dreams for societal change on innovation and technology change and it, it, how we implement technology and innovation reflects our society and if it changes it it's usually inadvertently mm -hmm. yeah we always assume that just with this one 
one thing our life will be better it's human nature isn't it and it's everyone does it every day if i just have that if i just buy a new car if i just um, get this new dress i'm sure you've all thought oh, if i just buy this new dress oh, my life will be better um, <coughs> and, and i guess we do that with with industry as well if i just implement this new technology all my problems will be solved well, but it's, it's, it's back to the early BIM presentations. It was BIM level two will force clients to think about Tortex. It was it will get them thinking about operations. It really hasn't because procurement, red tape, everything has blocked them to do that. And as exactly what Dan said, Dan, back to hashtag what Dan said, that that's the kind of response we got on projects, wasn't it, Henry? When we were on the on the front line of BIM delivery, they said, sorry, that's not... We can't do it because procurement doesn't allow it. We haven't got the budget it's, for that. You've got procurement laws. You've just got the the very way their organisation is set up is not to ask that, not to ask the questions that we would like them to ask. It's to ask other, you know, where is my form? Have you filled this out? You know, you get very, they get have to be very stuck in the day to day. And they've got a lot of things that I, I always think it's interesting. I think whenever something goes wrong, really wrong, um, a government certainly, uh, a uh, centrist government will put something in place to change that. Um, but then often you end up with this kind of this cycle of bureaucracy where all those things you were trying to change, CDM, you know, BIM, uh, all these things that you, all these tools you were using just became another cog in the machine that you're turning every day. Whereas it was supposed to be something that would let you think, would would let you see, and would let you understand what's happening, and you can make better decisions and so on and so forth. Um, and I think that's 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 why I'm <laughs> I say silently, but not really silently. That's why I'm positive about the the National Digital Twin Program because it has um, the BIM bits, things like the Commons and the um, Enabler stream, which is the get the resources right, um, do the engagement with the industry bit, which is what we had. But it also has the change stream, and actually, this idea of having a dedicated stream of work towards you know it, it catalyzing cultural and or organizational change i think is something we didn't have with the original mandate and everything else so i'm more positive Agreed. about the fact that we have a change element in there um but i, I think in, in towards, uh, towards vicky's point i mean i've always looked at that dress but um i'm a i'm a uh, pessimist who hopes for the future which i think that makes me a realist and you know I, I'll have buyer's remorse after I've purchased it. <laughs> I'll wait to see that little black dress. And that concludes today's episode of Tell Me Why.